Amen. As I mentioned earlier, we're in Psalm 84 this morning. We read our our text in the beginning of service, all 12 verses, and I kind of want to jump in and let's get into the Word this morning. The title of the message is called The Blessings of Dwelling in God's Presence. The Blessings of Dwelling in God's Presence. I can, I will not do it justice. I will not be, I mean, there are so many, they're countless. But I want to highlight at least a few of them in our text. But I'm going to spend a little bit of time in the first three verses by way of introduction just and, and share some things with you. Um, the first three verses of this psalm, you can look at it different, different ways, but in certain ways, it's like an introduction to the rest of the psalm, the way it's written. And I just want to point your attention. I'm not going to read them, but... Psalm 42 and Psalm 63, among others, are two psalms that have similar tones and, and thoughts and messages and this desire for God and praising Him and, and, and His presence and wanting Him. And then, in fact, even in Psalm uh, 42, there's, this, there's a point there where, and again, I don't know where you're at this morning, but where the psalmist says, you know, why are you so downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God. And what he's doing three times in that psalm in 42 is, he is actually, literally, and I've mentioned this before here, he is talking to his soul. He is, his soul. He is commanding his soul to praise God. Because you know what? A lot of times I don't feel like praising God. Or when I look around me, the world, my family, whatever it is, my situation, I, I might not want to praise God. Or think that I can do it in a right way, or that I can't do it sufficiently or deeply enough, or whatever it is because of the various things affecting my life. But the psalmist says, why are you so downcast? Why are you staying down? Why are you bowed low? Get up, put your hope in God. We've got to tell ourselves that a lot of times. So we've got to tell our souls to praise the Lord and to put our hope in the Lord. We've got to tell our soul to do that. And when we do that, praises start rolling off our lips doesn't matter if it's loud or quiet, but out of our heart, through our lips, God is praised and glorified. And so those two psalms are kind of, there's some similar things that you'll find and, and sentiments in those psalms, as well as others. But I want you to notice something in your Bible, if you have your Bible. And if you don't, it's okay, please just give me your attention. But at the top of the psalms, you'll find very often, and most often, you'll find a heading and it'll, it'll tell you, who wrote the psalm, what it's for, or maybe what occasion it was for, if they were going to a certain feast or a celebration, or whatever it was. Uh, maybe it was for a ceremonial uh, service or event for the king or something in, in, in the courts. It, it, it would tell you what it's for. Well, one thing you should notice in this psalm is that in the description, probably in your Bible, it says it was for the sons of Korah, right? Is that what it says? Yes? Thank you for making sure that I'm accurate. Thank you. Um, even though I have it in front of me. But it is, it is for the sons of Korah. Now, it's really, really important. We don't think about these things and we don't pay attention. Sorry, Dennis, I'm moving around a lot. I'm going to probably come down. Um, but the sons of Korah are, it, you, if, you took, if we took Psalms and it got cut off by COVID. Remember we had Psalms like a couple years ago and then we stopped and never resumed it. We'll get there one day. We'll start over in a different way. But we talked about the writers of the Psalms. And there were many, many different writers. Moses wrote a Psalm. David wrote many. Solomon wrote a couple. The sons of Korah wrote quite a few of them as well. And so when you note these things, it's important to know who's writing it and why it's so significant. And it is so powerful to understand the sons of Korah and Korah himself and how 
what a reminder it is to us of God's amazing, unceasing grace. If you know about Korah, their father, in Numbers chapter 16 in the Bible, God's people are out of Egypt and they're going through the wilderness. And as they're wandering, we know the story, they're a bunch of whiners, complainers, they're never happy. God gives them bread from heaven, whatever that stuff was, but it was amazing and it satisfied them. And still they complain, they said, we want meat for crying out loud. We're getting sick of this stuff that falls out of heaven and we can eat it and be sustained. And then God sends them quail, not from the preserve, but he sends them quail, right? And, and they're eating this quail. And, and they have meat. And then there's always something else to complain about. They're complaining about Moses' leadership and about other tribes and among each other. And they're fighting and murmuring and so on and so forth. It's too hot. It's too dry. It's too whatever, right? But in chapter 16, Korah, he is a Levite. He has, t- he has, he has tabernacle duty. Because in that time, historically, God's presence and, and the house of worship was this portable tent, Right? And so they would take it up and put it down. Then they'd stop for a while. Then they'd take it up. It had animal skins and curtains and it had the, the Ark of the Covenant. It, it, was, it was the real deal. And God's presence dwelt there, right? Over in, between the cherubim. And they would put up and take this down. It was portable. A portable church building, if you will. And so he has this call. He's in that line of the priesthood. And he is taking care of the temple. That's a, a big and important role. It's, it's critical in the life of the Israelites, their spiritual life as well as their national life. And their, even their civic life, it's spilled into that. And so Korah gets it in his head that Moses thinks that he's too good for himself and he's being too big, big shoddy, if you will. And he's trying to rule like he's the guy. He was the guy. God chose him to be the deliverer. He was Moses. He was the leader of all these people wandering in the wilderness, putting up with all their garbage. I can use another word. But their garbage, Right? And, he's dealing, and then Korah gets in his head, and he finds 249 other guys. And he says, rebellion time. Let's take this guy down, because he thinks he's all full of himself, and he's in charge. Well, he was, but Korah didn't like that, and so he rebels against his leadership. And you know what happens when he does that? It wasn't long after that God says, nope, am I doing that right with the finger? I have control. Nope, 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 nope. He says, that's not going to happen. And you know what happens right away? It's true. God sends judgment. And you would think it's almost like a scene from a Marvel movie. Because the fire comes down and ba-boom, they are, they, they're just, they're gone. They're gone. They're destroyed. They're burned up, consumed. They're just, they, they evaporate from the heat, if you will. What's the word for that when you get burned up like that? I can't incinerated thank you i can't think incinerated they're gone all 250 of them but you know what god spared his sons he didn't extend his judgment to his family in this case and now we have a psalm and other psalms where the sons of korah are writing these and they're still in the levitical priesthood and they still have temple and and tabernacle duty taking care of the temple of God so God's people could worship there in the proper prescribed way that God had, a holy God. And now they've experienced God's grace and they're writing these amazing psalms that we are still reciting and singing and praying and reading and being encouraged and inspired and moved by today, thousands of years later. Because they knew God's amazing grace. 
Oh, they're dead, had it coming. And I don't mean that like, because God's holy. God means business. That is God. He was just in doing what he did. And God was fully just in having grace towards his sons. Because God had a plan. And now he writes their psalms and they take care of the tabernacle. And they fulfilled their call that God had for them. And they're writing these psalms. And there's a longing because they know this God. And there's this, this, this expression, this sentiment of longing for God and his presence. Wanting nothing more than God's presence itself. And where are we today? Where am I today? Where are you today with that, with God's presence and wanting to be with Jesus? You know, expressions that you find in this portion of Scripture, they show us that the feelings that were here, even though they used words and chose words in this, these poetic songs and prayers... They're inexpressible, really, because they're so deep. And we have hints of that when, it's, when he read about the soul longs and yearns and even faint for God. They, I mean, well, what else can I say? It's so deep. It's, that's the best I can do with my language, even in the Hebrew language, but then translated into the English. And that's what they could do. And it was, they, they had this lovely memory of God's presence as, as devastating and as harsh as it was, if you will, where God sent judgment and they saw that firsthand and witnessed that, the sons of Korah. Now they saw the grace of God on their lives and God's call continuing on them because of his grace. And they're just blown away by God's grace. To their mind, their heart, and even to their, with their eye that they saw, but to their whole soul, they're just overwhelmed and they can't express it. Listen, the tabernacle, right? Where, as I mentioned earlier, this portable church building. They had the outer court, the inner court, the holy place, or the holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant was. But you had all these courts and certain people could go in there and then certain activities happened on the outer courts and then the inner courts and then in the holy of holies, very specific, exclusive things happened there. And the psalmist loved every portion of that tabernacle. Because God's presence was there, but along with God's presence... God's people were there too to enjoy God's presence, to be in his presence together. Because that's how it works. That's how, how God set it up. And even at a distance, the psalmist rejoices, if you will, to remember that sacred, holy tent where Jehovah, Yahweh, God himself, revealed himself and where the presence of God is. Where the believers would get together and they would sing songs of grace and joyful sounds of, of glory to God. And it's echoing and bouncing off the, the skins and the walls, if you will. And echoing out outside of that. And even around that tabernacle, God's people singing. And they're glorifying in God's, or being, and, and glorifying God for His presence. Look at verse 2. My soul longs or yearns. What does the psalmist what does his soul long or yearn for, desire so deeply, want so much? Two simple things by way of introduction again in verse 1 and 2. First of all, in verse 1, for the Lord Almighty. Lord Almighty is Yahweh, the Almighty God. He's the God who's all-powerful, all-knowing. In fact, Yahweh is the God who has all of the heavenly hosts, all the angels, all the armies, everything at his disposal, and they all respond to his command. All-powerful God, and yet he's personal. 
And he looks out for his people. He looks out for you and for me even today. And he longs for Lord Almighty, the God who's in control of everything and has all power. And then in verse 2, he yearns and longs for the living God. We sang this portion of this psalm earlier in a song, right? Better is one day. But the living God, what does that imply? It doesn't even imply. It says there is only one God who's alive. Every other God is a figment of the imagination. Every other God is made up, is created either by hands with something that's carved or something created in our minds. It's all idolatry and it's false idol worship. And there's only one God. There are only pretend gods and one true living God. That's it. And my soul longs for the Almighty God who's also alive. And he's with us. I'll tell you how alive he was, just to bring this back. And I've mentioned this before. He was so alive that he was with them in the, that cloud that was a pillar by day. And then that pillar of fire at night, he was with them right there. Oh, but it's a fire and it's a cloud, but it was God's presence. His very Shekinah glory was resting around the temple when Moses met with them. They would, in the Mount Sinai, God's glory, overwhelming, holy, majestic, mysterious, unfathomable glory was just there. And Moses was face to face with that, so much to the point that when he came down from the mountain, his face shone and the people had to turn away. He had to cover his face, actually, because it would fry everybody, if I could put it that way. That's how awesome the presence of God is. And he wanted this, this, this so desperately that even it was fainting to meet with the saints in the Lord's house, in God's presence. That deep, insatiable desire that the soul was yearning was for his God. I'm going to put it this way. The psalmist has a holy lovesickness, if I could take my liberty, all upon him. And he was so consumed with this inward desire for the Lord. You know, C.S. Lewis said something that I read when he, when he came across this psalm and, and he was commenting on it. And he said that this, this expression, this idea of longing or yearning for God, he phrased it, he said, it's more like I would describe it as this when I think of the context and what this individual is desiring and wanting in his soul. And he said, I don't want to be crude or kind of like, I forgot the word he used, but I will say it, he says, it was really the appetite for God. Not that you're eating God, but yet you are. I, hate, I, don't, I, I don't mean to be sacrilegious or, or, or bring, make it unholy or something. But, but to this appetite for God, right? Like when you want something, you want You have a taste of it, then you want more of it. And you just can't get enough of it. And when you've had that amazing, amazing cheeseburger that Barbara and Mike made last night, and you're like tempted to have another because it's so good, it's insatiable. But you know that if you eat more, you're going to be so stuffed you can't walk. Well, we should be so stuffed that it should just flow out of us with God. Right? Keep going back to that grill where God is, that presence where he is, and get so filled up until he comes out of you. Right? And there's a desire there. There's an appetite for God. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. It was God himself that he longed for, the only living and true God. And the psalmist declares that he could not remain silent in his desires. But he began to cry out for God and his house. He wept. He sighed. He pleaded for that privilege. I don't want anything else. 
but you, God, your presence. You know, back in the day, and, and even in our country, in certain parts of the country, and earlier in our history here in this country, but even in Europe now and around the world, in South America, Central America, and in Christendom, there's, and, and even other religions, there are, when people know it's time to worship, they hear bells, for example, church bells. Oh, time to go to worship. I hear the church bells. That's my call. I got to get ready. It's time to worship. And it's, a, it's, it's like a call, right? The psalmist here did not need any bells to ring to call him to worship. He had a desire. He had a longing. He had this holy appetite for God and for his presence. And listen, somebody said that a holy appetite is a better call to worship than a full church chime. So much better that when you are driven, you're motivated because of what's in you, your desire, than something outside of you saying, oh, you must, it's time, you must do it now. Now, we need those in life. I get it. We have alarm clocks and so on and so forth. But this idea of seeking God and knowing him should be something that's in the inside already. Let me ask you, is this your cry? Is it your heart's desire today to just want to be with God? in his presence? Do you love? Yes, love. Do you love? Do you have an insatiable appetite to meet with God's people, to be in God's presence with his people? I'm not asking you to answer because some of you might have a hard time saying yes. Because there's a lot of distractions. There's a lot of things, and we get diverted, and we get sidetracked, and yet there's nothing more valuable. And unless you have that time in God's presence, how can you function doing anything else that you do in this life? Got to make that first, and a priority, and long, and yearn for that. I don't have this in my notes, and it just came to my mind, and that's dangerous when that happens to me, but I'll just share this. I have such memories of being in God's presence I mean, even more recently, but just these memories. And I remember, and actually, it's just weird because I'm looking at Craig over there. But uh, I'm thinking of camp. Just came, I had this flashback. We used to go to camp in the Poconos for a week. And um, we would have our, our morning sessions, but especially our evening sessions. And just sometimes you'd have service. You'd have prayer at the end. And you would just be there for like a long, 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 long time. I mean a long time. Right? Like, so long that you'd walk out of there half-sleeping and fall right into bed on a couple of occasions. I'm not, I'm not kidding. He knows. And it was because God's presence, you didn't want anything else. Yes, I know you set aside time in your schedule as your family yourself, and you went to camp, and you did it with the family, and you have services. But you did that as a retreat to get away from all the stuff and just get in God's presence and just stay there when you can. And when you walk away, something's different. In your soul, in your spirit, your perspective has changed. And you realize there's nothing more valuable than being God's and being in his presence. Nothing. And I remember, not only that, but when I was in Bible school, and Sharon knows, we had the prayer room. We had the prayer chapel. It was in the castle building. And in the castle, there was a room. We had classes during the day. And after classes ended in the prayer tower, we would go there. That room was designated as a prayer room. And after classes ended in late morning... That was open exclusively from prayer. And yes, we had curfew at Zion Bible College. But it was open from basically lunchtime until 10.30 when curfew hit. And sometimes you go in there and you just forgot what time it was. You didn't care 
Yes, I know. You didn't even worry about the next paper that was due. Not that you didn't do it, but you, you were just lost in God's presence and you just stayed there. And that's all that mattered and it changed everything. And until you meet Jesus and you meet God like that, your life will just be routine and it will just be the same old stuff. But when you get in that presence, everything changes in His presence. How about some of those classes we had where you just start every class with a prayer? I'm sorry, I'm having flashbacks, but hey, this is God's presence. You start class, you know, you got a two-hour, two-credit class, two-hour class. You go in, and every class starts with prayer. Professor picks up, hey, you want to pray? Someone pray, can you pray? Start praying. All of a sudden, that student is praying, and then you don't pray until two hours are over. You don't stop praying until two hours are over. Because you're just lost in God's presence. And anything you can learn about theology in those two hours didn't matter because you learned more while doing neology than you did doing theology. And you walked away and you're like, I know the real God. I know the living God. I know who he is. I know how he relates to me. I can relate to him. I know how he moves. I know how he operates. I know he can do miracles. I know he can speak to me because he did. And, and so on and so forth. And you just it doesn't matter. You could study this to the, as much as you want and that you should. But you got to be in God's presence. You should long for that and hunger that. It will transform you forever. I'm sorry, but those are, I had to share those flashbacks. The psalmist envies the birds. I mean, he's jealous of the birds, the swallows and the sparrows that lived around the house of God. They built their nests and they found a place for their young and themselves. Listen, the church of God is a home for us and a nest for our little ones too. It starts in the home, but it, it's here too. It should be. And some of us, we desire that for our children. And they don't want to be in the nest. They want to get out. They get away. And that, I understand that. But listen, we keep praying for that. And we keep practicing the presence of God, if you will, and being in that. And we trust that they too will have a nest and find security and safety in their own lives in the presence of God himself, just like the sparrow and the swallow do. It's that place of security. It's shelter from the storm. It's a, it, it, it's a, it's a comfortable, and I, I would say, it's a very, very safe place to hide yourself from every kind of evil. It's a protection from all that can harm you can nestle in. You can find joy there. You can rest there. And the writer says deep in his soul, and he writes it and he spells it out, I want to dwell there. I want to be where those birds are. So close to your presence, God. Right there, maybe by your altar. Maybe it was right there in the corner by where the Ark of the Covenant was. I don't know. But so close. I want to be there, God. But there's one thing you have to note. That these these privileged birds, they, you have to know about them, that they did not know from whom all this kindness flowed from. They didn't know. They didn't know his heart. They didn't know God's heart. They didn't know his hand. And yet they enjoyed all the rich provisions of his tender care. God thought of everything for their need. And yet, there's no fellowship or relationship between them and the great giver. Not in a spirit level. Not in the spirit level. We learn a great lesson from this. Because we too shouldn't be satisfied with merely frequenting the house of God. 
But instead, there should be something, and we should rise in our spirit, and we should seek and find, and we should enjoy that direct communion with the living God through Christ Jesus by the power of his Holy Spirit and his presence. Now, I want to make a note here, because of course, we know we're living now after Jesus rose and sent his spirit, but the tabernacle and eventually the temple that Solomon built were symbolic of God's presence. And in fact, God did dwell in the Holy of Holies. But, even in the Old Testament, God and his presence were not limited to the tabernacle or the temple. Let me just share with you in 1 Kings chapter 8. Solomon, he, he builds the temple. King David was not allowed to build the temple. We know the story. He could not build that temple. He prepared everything, but he couldn't do it. Solomon comes along, and he builds and he constructs this temple after many years. And when he builds that... In chapter 8 of 1 Kings, he is there to dedicate. He makes a prayer to God among all of God's people who are there. And he stands before God, and he's thanking God and glorifying God and acknowledging God's greatness and his provision, his protection, and so on and so forth. And he goes on in verse 27, and he talks about the temple he built, and he says this. But will God indeed dwell on earth? Well, yes, he he does. And actually, he did when he walked as Jesus on this earth, eventually, right? The incarnate God, the Son of God, he was here. God incarnate. But he says, will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven, and he even goes further. He says, heaven and highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house which I have built. God's presence cannot be contained in the four walls of this sanctuary at New Hope Chapel. God's presence cannot be contained in the tabernacle in the wilderness. God's presence cannot be contained in the temple after Solomon built it. It cannot be contained there. God's presence is everywhere. And yet, and yet, hear me please, and yet God chooses to reside in a temple that He has created, not Solomon has created. He has chosen to reside in this temple He created. He has chosen to reside in your temple that He has created. Your body, your being. He has created you to reside in your temple. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that you, as a child of God, are the temple of the Holy Spirit in which the Holy Spirit resides and lives, he says. God lives in you by His Holy Spirit. He chooses to do that. And yet He's not limited to that. And as Christians, we know that God lives in us The question becomes, are we living with him? And are we staying in his presence? Four quick blessings. Yes, I told you I'd get there. Four blessings of dwelling in God's presence. Number one in verse four. The psalmist says that they are forever praising you. Those who are in his presence are forever praising you. Do you know what happens? Do you know what the blessing is of being in God's presence? You'll praise him. You'll praise him. When you're in God's presence, and when you're aware of that, and you're walking in His presence, foul language isn't going to come out of your mouth. It's not. You're not going to use words that tear down and cut and and squash people, but you're going to have the fruit of your lips being praise and thanksgiving and adoration and worship and gratitude. And doubts, they'll be there, but they get diminished. Fears, they get 
They, they start to fade away. And the unsettled questions, well, they're not gone, but they get quelled. And, and then you start to find answers. And listen, those things hardly exist in the holy place in God's presence. And remember that it's not your goodness. Not the goodness of the servants and how great we are, but it's the infinite worthiness of God Almighty that makes us praise Him. And when we see how He has delivered us from sins, when, the, when they saw how they were delivered from God's judgment, unlike their father, they could write these things, I long for that, I'm going to praise you forever in your presence, how can I help it? I've been saved, I've been spared by your grace, just like we have now, because of what Jesus did in setting us free from our sins and from the wrath of God. And how can, you, how can a heart be ungrateful not to praise Him when you know these things? You can't afford to just stay silent when you realize how merciful and gracious and loving God is. Psalm 96 says, Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord and bless His name. Proclaim good tidings of His salvation from day to day. Not day to day. That means keep doing it. Tell of His glory among the nations, His wonderful deeds among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. When you're in God's presence, you will say things that glorify and praise the Lord. You'll be an encourager, a reconciler, a peacemaker. You will say the right words at the right time. What comes out of your mouth will build up and not tear down, as I mentioned. It will give life and not kill and destroy. Oh, I admit, not proudly, that even though God has always been with me and is with me and will be with me to the end, I have sometimes not been with the Lord and some things have come out of my mouth that revealed that I don't know or that I was not in the presence of the Lord in that moment. Do we desire that? Do we want that? Because we are forever praising you when you're in a... Secondly, the second blessing is that we will go from strength to strength. Verse 7 tells us that. When you are in God's presence, we sang about that. No matter what comes your way you will get through or over it i guarantee you because god does and when you're in his presence you can get through anything verse 5 says blessed is the man whose strength is in the lord not in the temple not in the tabernacle not in new hope chapel not in your mom not in your dad not in yourself or, or not in how financially stable you think you are, or how successful you are at your job, or, or, or how, how good your family is by your standards, or not even because you've got a great church. But it's to trust in the presence and the power of God and no one else and no one else's power or influence. To have that. Blessed is the man whose strength is in the Lord. And the second part of verse 5 says, but in whose heart are his ways? Or that, that God's ways, that it is in our heart, that to do things His way, to go God's direction, to head towards God, and to move in that path towards Him, it's in our heart and we're going there. What is your heart attitude toward God? Are you serving Him wholeheartedly or not? Have you surrendered totally to Him or just a part of your life? You know, you can give God your sins, but not your finances. You can give God... Your sins, but not your will. You can give God your sins, but not your desires. 
You can give God your sins, but not your family. You can give God your sins, but not your job. You can give God your sins, but not you fill in the blank. He wants it all. And he wants full devotion. I think that one of the things that God laments the most is a half-hearted Christian. Remember the journey in the wilderness that I referenced earlier? Even though they were in the Lord's assembly and God's presence was among them, their hearts were still in Egypt. On many occasions, they complained and spoke against God and even Moses. Why have you brought us into the wilderness to die? We would have been better off in Egypt. Like, we like the garlic and the melon and, and all the other. The, and we didn't, it's better than the quail. We had fresh lamb and whatever else. They, we had all this stuff. And, and it's even better off because if at least when we die, we'll be given a proper burial there. But if we die here, we're left to left out in the sand and then the animals will consume us. We would have been better off in Egypt, really, the place of slavery. Their hearts were still in Egypt. And unfortunately, some of us still have our hearts in Egypt from time to time, and some of us are just there. No wonder they didn't make it to the promised land, most of these people that wandered. God said in Numbers chapter 14, verse 22 to 24, but my servant, he made an exception, but my servant Caleb has followed me fully. And he entered the promised land. Even Moses didn't enter. It's a huge testimony or testament to the fact that he was wholeheartedly in because he knew he was blessed and his strength was in the Lord and that he was in his presence and God was with him and he made it all the way and he got through to the promised land all the way in. Revelation 3, 16 and 15 and 16, God spoke to the church in Laodicea and this is what he said about them. He said, I know your deeds. I know the things you do, whether they're hidden, they're not. I know everything you do. And I know that you are neither hot nor cold, he said. So because you're lukewarm and you're neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. You know what? God gets nauseated too at times. He gets nauseated at half-heartedness. He does. If you really want to go back to Egypt, just go in and go. If you want to go to the promised land, Set your mind on it and go and be fully devoted. Enjoy God's presence along the way. You'll get through it all, even when it's hot and it's heavy and, it's, and you're hungry and everything else. You'll make it. Verse 6, they, go, they pass through the valley of Baca and they make it a well. I found out that this is the valley of tears or weeping. Now, kind of interesting because it is a valley after all. It's not a mountaintop. So usually, and we use that metaphorically, we understand that figuratively, that, that it's, when you're in a valley, we use that expression, it's, it's a tough place. It's low, it's dark, we're in despair, we're depressed, or we're, we feel doubts, we feel pressure, we feel all kinds of things, and, 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 and we feel like maybe there's no way out of this. It's hard, it's heavy, and it's dark, and, and, and it's a valley. Now, I know that some of us go through, and we go through dark times in our walk with the Lord. We go through difficulties, we go through pains, hurts, and you may have been mistreated and maybe even misunderstood by the very people that you love. You might be going through tough times in your family or your spouse or your job. Or, you know what, maybe, maybe you, you're finding it hard to forgive people who have hurt you. Or I must confess, maybe you're like me. You might just be too tired of just going through. It's tough. 
hard sometimes. And sometimes the valleys are deep and long and wide. God's there. God's there. God's there. Long for his presence. He'll get you through anything. Listen, hey, you were never promised golden streets on this earth or a bed of roses. The only promise Jesus gave us was, I will never leave you or forsake you. That means his presence will be with you. Do you want his presence more than anything else? Because everything else, all the stuff that comes will come, but his presence will always be with you through it all. I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to fail you. I'm not going to forsake you. And God even told Joshua, after Moses had died on the the western side of the Jordan, and when Moses crosses over, God says to Joshua, just as I was with Moses, I will be with you. In Joshua chapter 1, I will not fail you or forsake you. God was with him. God is water in the desert. He's food during famine and drought. He's strength when you're weak. He's wisdom and stability when you're confused. And Paul said, therefore, in 1 Corinthians 12, when I am well content with weakness, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sakes, for when I am weak, then I am yeah, but I'm so tired. I've been feeling so weak for so long. God says, that's perfect because you've got to rely on me and my presence and you're going to be so strong. I'm the strength in you. Even when he was given the thorn in the flesh, the apostle Paul pleaded and said, God, please take this thing away from my life. And God simply said, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in your weakness. In our weakness, God's power is made perfect because of his presence in our lives and we rely on it. Verse seven, we go from strength to strength, glory to glory, victory to victory, And then we're all going to appear before God in heaven. All of us who endure. You get through the valleys. You go from strength to strength. God gives us that to go through anything. Thirdly, God withholds no good thing from those who are in his presence. Verse 10 says, he didn't say say here that one year in your courts is better than a thousand. He said, but one day. Not a quarter, not a month. But one day. He shows that the very least of God is exceedingly more precious and gracious, and, and He's so gracious to our soul that when, when especially when God is our portion, we, He is ours, and he be, we belong to Him, He belongs to us, and we're in His presence. And He says, I would rather be a doorkeeper at the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. Psalm 27 4 says, One thing I have desired of the Lord, that I would seek after to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Why? Because in that presence, he gives us everything that is good. I don't care what you do, but just keep me in that house, God. Just keep me in your presence. Let me hear the sweet voices of God's people singing. Songs of love and grace sung by the believers. Let me hear the ministry of the word being preached and to be a part of the administration of communion and baptism and all those things that just point to your presence among your people. Just let me be where God is, is what he's saying over and over again. And I'm getting here to the end, and I love this portion right here. Sorry, but I just love this part. He says... For he is a sun and a shield about his God. Now, this is so awesome, man. I'm going to repeat this so that you really get this. As a son, this being God, as a son, he shows me myself. And as a shield, 
He shows me Himself. I'm going to say that again. As a son, He shows me myself. As a shield, He shows me Himself. See, as a son, He discloses my own, and I will use the word intentionally here, He discloses my own nothingness. Now, in comparison, when you're in the presence of this holy God, you realize what you are. Oh, man, just what? Yeah, and yet I'm so valuable. I'm the most valuable thing, most valuable being that he's created in his presence to God. And yet I'm nothing compared to him. And yet he values me so much and that he lives inside of me. And, and he discloses that. And as a shield, he shows me his divine sufficiency. He's everything I need and He'll always be everything I need. As a son, He enables me to discern that I deserve nothing but wrath and can earn nothing but shame. But as a shield, I have a title to immortality and I can claim my inheritance in heaven. As a shield, He strengthens and energizes me. As a son, I'm sorry. He strengthens and energizes me. He's a light to your path, to my path. He's a light to your feet and and to my feet. But as a shield, He protects, He comforts, and He shelters. And He always will. Moses said, and he gave a blessing to the God's people. He said, the Lord shall preserve your going and your coming out. He shall give His angels charge over you to keep you in His ways lest at any time you should dash your foot against a stone. Do you remember that conversation that God had with Satan in the book of Job? God said, have you considered my servant Job? Which I always think is interesting, but anyway, it's a whole other discussion. Hey, uh, Satan, uh, what about Job? You want to you you mess with somebody? How about Job? That's, I mean, it's kind of what it's like. I mean, if I could just, in the vernacular, in my own paraphrase. And Satan replies, yes. I have, and you have set a hedge about him. Oof, that's that shield, that hedge, where, 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 where the shepherds used they, these hedges they would put, and in some cases, and they put the sheep in there, and they put briny, uh, thorny briars there so the, 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 the predators couldn't get in. There's all kinds of different pens they made for these sheep. And yet, this is a shield. It shields, it protects them from the enemy. It protects them. From that which wants to destroy. And, God, and Satan says, yeah, but you got a hedge about him. So, you know, unless you're not his shield, I can't do anything. Now, I can't begin to understand why God allowed and removed his shield around Job for a time. But yet I trust that God is sovereign. He had an amazing plan in the end. He shows God knows what he's doing. He's going to keep Job anyway. He was faithful. Listen, with, with, with God as our shield, the devil can do me no harm. Period. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk up lately in verse 11. I am not talking about health and wealth, riches and honor. For those, those are things that God gives to people who are saved, unsaved, righteous, unrighteous. They've got all kinds of things. And, it, and it's okay if you've got things. As long as you use them and keep God, number one, in perspective. And it's all for his glory. But the, God, people are blessed, if you will, with all kinds of things. And Jesus even says that the rain and the sun, the rain falls, the sun shines on the just and the unjust, the wicked, the, the unrighteous, and, and the righteous. He, it's all there. It's God's common grace, right? But the good things of God that he does not withheld from those who are in his presence is this peace of conscience and mind. Oh, you can't put a price on that. Joy in the Holy Spirit. Can't buy that. You can't earn that. His glorious presence, just plain and simple. 
How about the vision and the hope? Not wishful thinking, but that assuredness, that hope we have of His glory as we enter into eternity. We're going to get there one day and we're going to be there with Him forever and ever. Those are amazing blessings that we have in God's presence. As I close, God will not withhold good things to those who dwell in His presence. He carries those who are in His presence from strength to strength. And when you're in His presence, you will be singing praises like you wouldn't believe. And so I just want to say this. And I say this with all confidence. I say this confidently, as confidently as I can say it. I don't even know. I can't even, I don't have words to say this. But I say this with confidence. First, on the basis of this psalm that we read, and of all of Scripture that we have in our hands here in this book, in the 66 books of the Bible, and within the history of God's people, God's true people, His chosen people, and then even my own experience with my Savior and my Lord Jesus and God His Father, that it is a blessing to be in God's presence. Where else do you want to be? And why? And so my prayer, as I close, this is my prayer. My encouragement, almost a challenge for you, is found in verse 12 of this psalm. O Lord Almighty, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Are you trusting Him? Because God's presence is always with those who trust Him. But if you're not trusting Him, you won't be in His presence. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, take these words. Do things in our hearts and in our spirit that no one can do. Help us to long, to yearn, to want Your presence, to be with You, to do things Your way, so that we might not because of, but that we might actually know and understand and live within the blessings that you offer in your presence, God. So help us, Lord, understand that precious treasure of your presence. Help us to seek you. Help us not relent in getting a hold of you. And help us to walk closely with you, Lord, every day. And help us, Lord, then, to take your presence and share you with others around us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great hot day. No, stay cool. And enjoy the blessings of God's presence.